Welcome to Words to Mouth, an author interview talk show where readers meet authors beyond the printed page and win free books. I'm your host, Carrie, and I produce this show to introduce you to new and seasoned authors and the books they write. Check out my companion blog website at wordstomouth.com. That's words with an S. T-O-Mouth.com, where you'll find more author interviews, book reviews, and chances to win free books. My guest today is Michael Palmer, who's going to talk to us about his newest book, number 13, The Second Opinion. Thanks for being with us, Michael. Oh, it's great to be here, Carrie. So, Michael, who's your biggest fan? Oh, my biggest fan is me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. You got high self-esteem, huh? No, um, I'd like to say it's my, it's my son. I have uh, three sons. And uh, one of them is 18 and has read one of my books that I know of. And the other one is uh, in the Foreign Service, and he's too busy to be reading. Uh. No, he reads, uh, you know, diplomatic stuff and nonfiction. Uh And the middle son is a writer who has just gotten his first uh, book contract. Uh, I'm very proud of him. Oh, that's great. Very excited. What is his name? Daniel James Palmer. Okay. His first book is Delirium, and he has gotten a contract for three books, so he'll be working for uh, Kensington Publishers. How old is he? Uh, Daniel's grown. He's a grown grown. man with kids of his own. Okay, okay. I have a big spread. All right. A big spread that probably isn't just my waistline, it's more my family. (laughs) Okay. So Daniel's read everything that I've written, Uh and uh, he's currently uh, working with me on my new book, uh, which is The Last Surgeon. Oh, okay. Well, before we go there, let's talk about, actually, before we even get into the second opinion, um, I'm interested to hear about your background as a physician and how your writing career emerged. Sure. I have my boards in internal medicine Mm -hmm. and also in emergency medicine and also in addiction medicine. And I've done all three at one time or another. And uh, I always thought that I had some kind of hidden talent, but I was never um, really positive about it. I tried playing with a band, and I was okay, but not great. And I tried doing summer stock theater with the same results. And then I read Robin Cook's book, Coma. And uh, Robin went to Wesleyan in Connecticut, the same school that I did. And we trained at Mass General Hospital in Boston together. And so we knew each other. And I decided that if Robin had the same education that I do and he could write a book, maybe I could write a book. Mm-hmm. And I did, a page at a time. Uh, I would come home from the office and, and just write for maybe an hour. And then uh, the next night I'd do the same thing. And eventually I had a book. Uh, was it, it never was published. Oh, I was going to ask you if it was difficult to get that first one published. Yeah, that one was never published, but eventually it actually got published in about six foreign languages. Ah. Uh, my American publishers were uh, never bold enough. It, it wasn't very good. Mm. And, uh, but it was a good start. And what I learned from sending my book off actually to a friend in the publishing business was that uh, people who are new, new writers uh, can sort of be taught how to write but what I couldn't be taught was a sense of what was dramatic. And he felt that I had that. He didn't know why or how, but uh, it was built into me. And uh, so he encouraged me to um, to send my book to an agent in New York, and I did. And she hated my book, much as he did. Uh, <laughs> but she felt I had promise in terms of, of just the way I, I put thoughts together mm-hmm. and the way I told the story. And uh, she became my agent, and now... 30 years later, she still is. That's awesome. 
and uh, so my first book was not the one that I wrote. My first book was a book about um, nurses and mercy killing, a uh, secret society of nurses dedicated to mercy killing, and that's called The Sisterhood. And now after all these years, it was published in 1982, and it's still in print. It's in its 36th printing, and wow. it's been translated into 35 languages. It was a good book to start with. Um, I often say that I'll never come up with a as, as good an idea as The Sisterhood, so the trick now is to write a better book about a less strong idea. Mm. Many people, um, you know, have have trouble coming up with that second huge book if they have a big one to start with. I, I've, yeah, I've heard that. I don't have to go any farther than Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, mm-hmm. and then sort of spent his whole professional life trying to rewrite Jaws, mm-hmm. uh, because he'll never come up with maybe an idea quite as primal and frightening as being eaten by a big fish. (laughs) Well, introduce us to some of your characters and um, give us a little bit of an overview of the second opinion. Maybe I should tell you first that my notion of writing a thriller or what a thriller is um, may not be the same as other people's. Uh, I, I have not been able to write sequel to any of my books. And one of the reasons is that my books all deal with a, um, kind of an average person in in my case they're they're doctors so they're mm-hmm. but they're average for doctors in that their only goal in life is really what our goal is which is to be happy they want to do their work they want to have love they want to have a um, an interesting life and uh and wake up every morning and go to bed every evening happy mm-hmm. and uh, the problem is that in in each of my characters there's a something in their history, there's something in their um, knowledge, there's something in their work that is going to make it impossible for them to continue that way because it's going to put them in conflict with the plot of the book. Mm. And so basically what I look for is, is a solid medical story that I can, that's current, that's in the news, uh, that I can take advantage of for a, uh, a suspense novel. But with the hero or the heroine, coming upon the plot almost by chance. This latest one I got the idea for one day when I was actually at the office of my own doctor. And I went in and sat down, and I've had this guy for many years. And and he, I looked up, and he's sitting in front of his computer screen, and he's not looking at me. Mm-hmm. And he's typing as fast as he can, and he's asking me questions. And finally, I kept whistling. I, I'm over here. I'm over here. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he looked over very sadly and said, I can't unless I get this information and I'm not going to get paid for this visit. And um, that's when I realized that there was a serious downside to electronic medical records. Right. And I decided to write a thriller about using electronic medical records as a murder weapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the the what if question that I ask. What if electronic medical records could be used by an expert in medicine and an expert in information technology um, as a murder weapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book became the second opinion. And uh, it's been out now since February. It's doing wonderfully well. And uh, people are having fun with it, not only because of the plot, but because the main character in the book is an interesting woman, uh, Thea Sparalakis, a member of a Greek medical family, 
uh, and Thea has Asperger's syndrome. So I got a chance not only to write about electronic medical records, but to write about Asperger's syndrome, which is very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm aware your son, one of your sons has it. Yes, my, uh, my youngest son, who's now 18, uh, was diagnosed when he was four as having this, it's a form considered to be a form of high-functioning autism, and it involves the um, inability to make normal social connections with people, to understand social dynamics, to maintain eye contact uh, with another person, uh, to have small talk. Uh, He was incapable of all of those things when he was young, and through a tremendous amount of therapy and a tremendous amount of work, um, his mother and I have been able to uh, help him to um, knock down many of the barriers that were keeping him from uh, from being happy. Well, and actually, you've got two characters in your book. Dimitri also has AS for short. It's so kind of like two two ends of the spectrum with Thea and not two ends of the spectrum, but um, they Absolutely. handle it differently. Yeah, and I wondered if it's often the case where people excel in a particular skill like Dimitri did with his technology? Well, what I really wanted to do was to make the point that as difficult as Asperger's syndrome can be, it's quite treatable. And the, the family in the book, the Sparalakis family, has four children uh, and a father who's a very famous and powerful uh, physician. Mm-hmm. And the four children range from Dimitri who is the oldest, who has Asperger's syndrome and was never treated, and he was never diagnosed, in fact, and his father was ashamed of him and ended up, because he was weird, um, keeping him kind of, he wasn't locked up, but keeping him in the family coach house where he sort of lived with his computers and his computer screens and his collection of um, Star Wars memorabilia and Coca-Cola memorabilia and vir- virtually was a shut-in mm-hmm. uh, with an IQ of 180 with no social graces and no social skill to speak of. And uh, his the middle two children in this family were twins who are what we call neurotypical. Uh, one was a uh, actually a cardiac surgeon and one uh, was an orthopedic surgeon. And then the, the youngest of the four also had Asperger's. Uh, and that was Thea, and she was treated from the time she was about 10 years old. And so the differences between Dimitri at, uh, you know, 43 and Thea at 33, uh, where Dimitri was never diagnosed and never treated, and that's what I enjoyed writing about the most. Yeah. I want people to know uh, that, as with my son, who is just graduating from high school this year and is going to his... Um, first choice of colleges, and when I never thought he'd ever go to college, um, and he's perfectly ready to go. I think he'll do fine. Um, I want people to know that this is out there for them, but they're going to have to work for it. Well, it seems like that it's, uh, you know, these different autistic conditions, or I'm not sure how you, what, what you call it, as far as them, you know, being on that autistic spectrum. Yeah, it that's, seems, I mean, that's the word. Okay. It seems that it's just with people that I know with young kids that it's just really the diagnosis is really taking off. I mean, I have a, I have a nephew who's been 
diagnosed and also another friend that has a little boy that sounds a lot like Dimitri in a way. He's very, very intelligent, but he has those those issues that you talked about with the social skills and, you know, not being able to read emotional feedback and that kind of thing. What are your recommendations? Are there particular um, resources that you would recommend to people if they suspect that there's something like that going on with their child? All parents who are in the middle of this uh, try as many therapeutic modalities as they possibly can. The single central reference, there's two of them that people can use. One of them is called um, the Developmental Delay Registry. And I think the I can double-check it or you can double-check it, but the website is devdelay, D-E-V-D-E-L-A-Y, um, I think it's Deb Delay. I can check that and put it in the show notes for people to look at. Okay, if you can do that, that would be great. And and another one, especially for people from New England, although anyone can use it, is the um, Asperger's Association of New England, A-A-N-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also a, a resource um, for anybody who has questions about this condition. So the Dev Delay people, Developmental Delay, or um, Asperger's Association are two places I would recommend. And, of course, there are now dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of books um, dealing with Asperger's and every aspect of it. And uh, I think the question you asked is an interesting one. And I actually, at the end of um, the second opinion, I listed out 15 questions about Asperger's and I answered them as best I could uh, with the help of the people from the Asperger's Association of New England. And uh, the first question is, well, is there really an increase in the, in the condition or um, are we just diagnosing it more because we know more about it? Right. And the answer to the question is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. The answer is that maybe it, it is just that we're seeing it more in people who... Um, 10 or 15 years ago were labeled as um, as geeks or labeled as nerds or um, or labeled as just a disabled odd child right uh, some of these kids are profoundly uh, disabled because of their um, inability to focus on things other than uh, train schedules or uh, in the in the case of my son he became obsessed with cartoons Mm-hmm. animation and he still is he's a tremendous expert on animation and he not only knows about it but he can do it and he's had his cartoons on the web uh looked at by more than a hundred thousand viewers um, so there's a lot of good parts to people with asperger's that in the case of luke i don't want him to change i want him to keep the parts that make him unique and fun and interesting and then to get rid of the parts that make it life hard for him. Well, I did like that. There was a line that Thea said. I think her one of her the twins was making a comment about the way that she responded to somebody, and she was just, I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but she was basically like, you know what, just appreciate me for, the, for who I am instead of looking at what you consider to be, um, I don't know, she didn't use uh, the word disability. Right. Yeah, no, I like I that. What you're saying is exactly right. It's the um, it's the most important thing is for the kids to just have um, strong self-esteem, mm-hmm. which is of course what we're all trying for in our lives anyhow. And uh, so, for parents of of kids with with anything on the spectrum, which would include 
um, Asperger's syndrome would include um, even ADD uh, and ADHD, I think, but uh, there are some people who might argue with that one. Um, but the, the trick is to just keep saying, I love you, you're doing great, um, let's go to this class for a while and see how you do there. Um, in the case of my own son, the, the area that he benefited the most in was a group in uh, Massachusetts called the Spotlight Program, which practiced um, improv as a way of teaching the kids social pragmatics. So that when you ask my son, you say to him, how are you? And, and Luke will inevitably say, oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. And it sounds wonderful when you hear it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really pretty grown up. And the truth is, it's, it's a, uh, there are 10 other kids who will say the same exact thing mm-hmm. because they practiced it. Huh. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of them knows that. And, and eventually it becomes just part of the way they respond to people. Uh-huh. And, uh, so, so it's sort eight. of role-playing that they do with them and kind of teach them exactly the response. Exactly what they do. They, they play huh. games uh, together to learn how to do this stuff to communicate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and eventually it, it all falls into place. It's, what I write about in the book is um, if we think about people who have had a stroke and say they've lost the part of the brain that works their right arm, they just can't use their arm. And they go into therapy, and by repeated, repeated pieces of therapy for their right arm, their brain is able to find new pathways that make the arm work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work as well as it did when they started, but it works. And so it really means that that dead brain, which is what people with Asperger's syndrome have in a a sense, the part of the brain that's, that's doing social pragmatics isn't working. Mm-hmm. So they have to relearn it in kind of a different part of their brain. And the relearning process is just by re- repeated practicing over and over again and learning how to do small talk. Um, these kids don't know how to talk on the telephone because they don't understand why you would talk on the telephone if you didn't specifically have something to say. <laughs> and any Asperger parent that you talk to, they know that. Mm-hmm. They they call their kid to see how they're doing, and, and they get three words out of the kid. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, it, you know, when they when the kids become teenagers, uh, if they haven't been been treated uh, properly in this area, they, they don't do what other teenagers do, where they lie on their bed, you know, with their feet up in the air on the wall and, mm-hmm. and just talk for a half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And once the business is is taken care of, there's nothing else to talk about. And, uh, you know, in the case of Luke, he's learned how to talk on the phone, he's learned how to instant message, and uh, and it's been great to watch him develop. That's wonderful. So that stuff is all in the book and in a fiction, in a form of fiction, and uh, and at the end of the book is is sort of a little primer about what Asperger's syndrome is, especially in an, in an adult, and uh, and what can be done about it. I do. I appreciate the way that you weaved uh, the information into into fiction. I had another author that wrote about Alzheimer's in that same way, still Alice, and I, I just think it's a great learning tool. It's an interesting way to kind of give some exposure to to the condition. Yeah, I think if we, I mean, we have uh, 
if we have expertise, and as a physician, I have a lot of a lot of it in some areas. I'm uh, I feel excited to be able to share that in the form of a story. Every story needs to have a main character, and the main character has to have something in their lives and something going on. And it's mm-hmm. it's fun sometimes. Um, my my new book, the one that I'm working on right now, uh, is called The Last Surgeon, and the the hero of this book is a uh, physician who uh, has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. uh, from his service in Afghanistan where a terrorist blew up the hospital where he was working and, and killed all the people in the hospital except for him. Mm. And uh, so he becomes a very interesting character because in addition to everything that I'm going to give him to do, um, he's got that personality um, disorder that he has to deal with and uh, figure out a way to treat. So that's what the new book is about. Well, let me just tell listeners that Michael has offered a free copy of The Second Opinion. So you'll need to go to wordstomouth.com and leave a comment under this interview post or call 206-309-7318 and leave me a voicemail comment that I can play on air. Um, Make sure you're signed up for my e-newsletter because that's how I announce who wins. I wanted to get back to The Second Opinion real quick and just ask you on more of the dramatic side of it. what, What was your favorite scene to write in the book? Um, there were a lot of little scenes that I really uh, enjoyed. Uh, the book itself deals with um, uh, her father mm-hmm. who uh, ha- is hit by a car and is in a coma. And there's a moment when she realizes uh, there have been people arguing at his bedside about whether he should be taken off life supports and, and allowed to die, and that includes his two uh, middle children who are in favor of just letting him go. Right. And there's a, a scene where Thea is at the bedside by herself and she loves her father very much and suddenly realizes that he's never been in a coma, that he's wide awake and he's suffering from this very terrible syndrome mm-hmm. called locked-in syndrome where he is unable to move any of the muscles in his body but yet he's totally cognizant of the things that are being said and he can understand everything that's going on. And, and that's a scene that I liked writing and that I enjoy um, thinking about. And there was also another scene in the book that I liked where she meets a hospital security guard that she likes. Mm-hmm. And in the course of trying to, to have a kind of normal conversation, she keeps giving him way too much information. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and um, and he's astonished, and he asks her finally uh, after she gives him um, uh, twenty different definitions for the word bust. Yes, uh, I remember that. He asks her, "Do you always do that with with people?" And she looks at him and says, "No, not not always, but I could." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she knows so much, and so those are the scenes in the book that I that stick out that I really did enjoy. Um, writing and reading. I like both of those too. I mean, it's, yeah, when his eye moves and you realize, oh my gosh, he, he understands. And you, yeah, you're definitely a gifted storyteller. I like that, that, that scene in the cafeteria as well. And you do a great job of showing his character um, with the boy in the scene. I like that too. Thank you. 
Oh, oh, I wanted to kind of turn the pages on you a little bit or turn your own words on you a bit. From page 25, you asked the question in one of your characters, what if you knew the exact day and time you would die, what would you choose to do differently? Um, it's always been uh, one of the one of the profound, if it is profound, questions mm-hmm. that um, I wonder about myself. And obviously, uh, it's a helpless feeling if you knew when you were going to die. And it, it's possible that uh, that people who had that information would just stop. Like, why do anything? It's possible that people would realize that life is to be led a day at a time, and that all you have is this moment. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I need to make the most out of whatever I have. And uh, maybe they would uh, travel more. Maybe they would suddenly get into um, service to others as a way of making the most out of the time that they had. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've always thought about it and wondered how I would respond. And the answer um, for me should be, well, you should always live your life as if this is it, as if you haven't got any time left. Um, and It's I, a difficult thing to do, isn't it? To keep that very, perspective? Very, very right. It takes practice, actually. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it's very um, difficult to live your life a day at a time without practicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always uh, saying to, to people that uh, my... My boys are big. They're big now, mm-hmm. uh, six feet tall or more, each of them. And um, and there was a time when I used to carry them off to bed at night, and I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and, and that means that there was a night when it was going to be the last time I was ever going to carry them off to bed, and I didn't know it. Oh, yeah. When I was doing it. And mm-hmm. there's so many of those things where... Um, where you don't know when you're doing it that you're never going to do it again. That's a great point. Yep. And in fact, periodically, I just uh, totally embarrassed them by grabbing one of them and hauling them up and carrying them off to the bed. <laughs> so that the last time I did it won't have been the last time I did it. That's cute. And uh, I had I that mean, experience not too long ago where I was looking back at, I've got two teenage girls, actually, and I was looking back at video, and there's a picture of my husband, or a video clip of my husband holding my daughter, and she's, you know, she's uh, sucking her thumb and falls asleep, and I'm like, oh, you know, if I could just have her be that little girl that I could hold in my arms one more second, you're completely right, I love that that idea of, um, you just never know when that last that last time is, but... Yeah. Thank, God, know, tr- thank goodness for grandchildren, right? <laughs> yeah, you get to do it again. <laughs> the trick is to um, to live every moment again as if that maybe I won't be doing this again. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe this is the beginning. I, I don't know. And, yeah. and I I work with um, with doctors who are uh, in recovery from uh, drug addiction and alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I tell them all the time is that. Uh, you have no way of knowing if this is it, if you've had your last drink. It's a day at a time. And it may be that that 30 years from now, you'll look back and realize that that was the day that you did it. Mm. Even though you've tried it a dozen times and failed, this may be the day. And and you have to act as if it's, that, as if it's the day. And uh, wow. it's very um, profound for them yeah. to realize that, that, you know, every journey starts with a single step. The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. The the journey of not drinking starts with a day of not drinking. Yeah. And hmm. uh, so I think about that stuff. And whenever I do, I try to stick it into my books. 
now I get to put it on um, Twitter. You, oh, good. You're into Twitter. I was going to ask you, I know you've got a really great website, and I know that you're on Facebook, so you're on Twitter. Are, the, are you on any other well, social the, media sites at all? Basically, or? what happened is that um, that my publicist at uh, St. Martin's uh, told me that I'm, I'm very much unaware of what's <laughs> happening in the new media now. Uh-huh. And, I'm, you know, I'm uh, a senior and uh, in my 60s, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I don't have any idea the power of the Internet. Mm-hmm. And she suggested that I needed to get uh, a PR person who understood the Internet mm-hmm. and, and to give my, my writing a cyber presence. Mm-hmm. And so she's the one who enrolled me in Facebook and in uh, MySpace. And then in Twitter, I refuse to go to Fixture because I really don't even understand what it is. Well, you have to be careful, too, not to get too many because then you're not effective. You're not engaged in the conversations. You know what I mean? It gets too unwieldy. I think that's already already happened. (laughs) I really do. That's when you hire, you know, I heard that people are hiring ghostwriters for Twitter now. So. Oh, so they'll sound wise. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just pay somebody to make you sound really good. <laughs> I haven't gone that far either. But I, for, I, for example, I, um, I came across a, uh, a, a review of my books in a, in a site. Maybe, maybe it was yours. I don't even remember what it was. But it, it basically said, um, chosen one of the top 100 book review sites on the internet and I said to my son who's a very um, wise person in, about these things I, I said I, I can't believe there are a hundred <laughs> sites on the internet that that do this and he very calmly said dad yeah there are a hundred thousand yeah yeah and, and of course I have no idea the power uh, of the internet and um, and so I've enjoyed being on Facebook, although I'm not the one that ever sends out and asks someone to be my Facebook buddy. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the publicists do that. But when someone writes me, I try to always write them back, just like if somebody sends me an email off my website, um, I'll always try to answer it. Sometimes it takes me a month. That's okay. Well, give us the, the uh, web address real quick. For me, it's Michael Palmer Books. One word dot com. Okay, so they need to add books to the to the bottom of your name or the end of your yeah. name. Yeah, and it's on the obviously it's in, in the flap of my um, my books. Yeah, and I'll put that on the website on my, in my show notes as well. We're running a little bit short on time. Tell me real quick what what are you reading right now? Um, believe it or not, I'm I'm reading a book that nobody's read because uh, I when I was a new writer. Some very famous writers uh, gave me blurbs on my first book, and I vowed that if what I had to say ever mattered, that I would never say no to a new writer if they needed my help. But Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, the problem was that uh, little did I know that I now get anywhere from three to ten yeah. advanced manuscripts, uh, ARCs they're called, um, every month. Yeah. And so um, I have a pile of them, and I read them. I won't blurb something I haven't read uh, and so I have a pile of them sitting on the floor um, and and whenever I have time I read them uh, and if I'm going on vacation and I try to take one book that everyone's been talking about mm-hmm. um, the next one I'm going to read is the, um, uh, the 
the story of Edwin Sawtell. Mm, okay. Um, I don't know if you know that book or not. No, but, I don't. Um, I'll the last book I read before that one uh, for myself was um, Water for Elephants. Oh, okay, good. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little slow at times for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, I have some writers that I love, James Lee Burke. Uh, when I have time, I'll read him. Uh, Tess Gerritsen uh, is my friend, and we teach together. I, I read her uh, as much as possible. So you teach um, writing as well? Yes. Are you uh, still practicing as a physician? Yes. Oh, my goodness. And, I, and I'm a... Uh, you know, a single daddy. Uh, oh, okay. My, my kid lives with me, and uh, so yeah, I'm pretty busy. busy. Yeah, yeah, you are. I wanted to ask you before I forget, are you, like your character, um, Thea, are you involved with the Doctors Without Borders? Um, I support them. Okay. And uh, I've done medical missions before. I've been to Central America a couple of times mm-hmm. uh, doing medical missions. One, The first one, I was uh, there for two weeks. So I have some experience with international medicine and crisis medicine. Um, I think possibly after my kid goes away to college, then I may start volunteering a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in your maybe, spare time, right? <laughs> do, well, I maybe do less writing. And, no, no, no. <laughs> do a little more hands-on stuff. Yeah. It's um, You know, I really have been very happy with my life. I love it. And uh, I'm happy to have discovered this sort of little splinter skill of being able to write books. Uh, I never knew I could do it, and then all of a sudden, I could do it. Well, this is my first one of your books, and I really enjoyed it, The Second Opinion. So I will be going back and reading some of the other ones, I, I especially the one where you talked about the mercen- the uh, what did you call it? The yeah, nurse- The Sisterhood. For- the Sisterhood. Yeah, that sounds um, interesting to me. Yeah, it was an interesting, what happened was I got connected with the agent in New York City, and uh, she read my first book that I had written and, of course, didn't like it very much. And at her request, I went to New York and I sent them uh, about 10 ideas for other books that I had. And when I went, she said, look, look at this idea. We all like this idea. And can you write this book? And she pointed to an idea I'd written down, which said, Secret Society of Doctors Dedicated to Mercy Killing. Mm. And she said, this is a strong book. Could you do this? And I said, you know, I don't know. I think so. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, did I know that 75% of the people in this country who buy books are women? Is there any way I could make this nurses instead of doctors? And the moment she said it, my brain exploded. I saw the whole book. Oh, that's cool. In five seconds. And and what I was seeing, Carrie, was that um, at the basic essence of of writing fiction and in fact of writing anything is that that our books are all about conflict and resolution mm-hmm. and in the case of uh, of mercy killing the conflict between the nurses who take care of the sick patients for 23 hours and 55 minutes and the doctors who come in and and don't know the family as well don't know the pain that they're going through and say i want a full resuscitation on this lady right and then leave the room, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's conflict uh, between characters, conflict between the character and the plot, conflict within the character, and and there are yeah. many other forms of conflict and and resolution, and that's what the books are all about. That sounds like a great a great story, but I'm going to have to get that one. Um, 
I think you'll have fun with it. I think yeah. you would like a book called The Patient. Okay. Uh, which is about a neurosurgeon, a woman whose mother wanted her to be a hairdresser. <laughs> That's a flip. <laughs> doesn't understand why she's not married at age 40. I had a friend that that um, went and got her PhD in, I don't know the exact term, but it, she let's just say she went and got her PhD, that's enough, and her mother couldn't understand why she didn't want to do any more than teach aerobics. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's interesting. It's funny. Well, this is kind of the reverse of that. Right. So, Michael, what's next for you? Well, everything is a day at a time for me, as I said. Um, the only thing I really do know is that I've signed a contract with St. Martin's Press I just finished a contract for them to write three books in three years, which I've been able to do. And now I've agreed to write four books in the next four years. And as you probably know, in the book business now, um, writing a book a year is kind of the standard. Mm -hmm. And with most authors, if you're not willing to do it, then the publishers have trouble paying you. Well, I think you've proven yourself as far as being able to consistently provide good writing and well, great storyline. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, very hard, and it requires an amount of discipline that a lot of people don't have. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the reasons doctors often make good writers is because if they have nothing else, they have discipline. Right, and, right. And uh, that's what got us through organic chemistry. Well, it's always interesting to me. I interviewed another author. He wrote The Scalpel and the Soul, Alan Hamilton. I don't know if you've read that book. I haven't, but I think I you didn't I think you'd enjoy it. It's basically about how, you know, the soul outtrumps science and he gives all these different stories of patients throughout his life, but as with you, I'm always kind of struck by people who, and also with with Lisa Genova who wrote Still Alice that she's studied neuroscience and to me, I think, my gosh, you've got this two sides of the brain working. You're, you're creative and able to be a doctor. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's just amazing. Because sometimes you think, well, the book's going to be, you know, somewhat dry or academic. So it's really a gift to be able to pull all that drama and conflict and everything out of somewhere and put it on paper. Well, yeah, and especially with, with physicians, um, we, we do have, contrary to what a lot of people might think, we all have a great love of people. And it shows up in our ability to write about them. And, uh, you know, there are other famous writers like Somerset Maugham and, and Arthur Conan Doyle, who were physicians, Anton Chekhov, the playwright. And, uh, you know, it's the two things. It's the discipline and it's the love of people mm. that makes us be able to, uh, to write about them with feeling. And I think that that's where I come from. I think that makes you a good physician. I don't know if all physicians have that love for people. I've worked in the medical profession in a much different capacity, and there are very good doctors, and then the ones that maybe don't have that same love for the actual person and maybe just for the science. So I think that you must be be one of the others. (laughs) Yeah, they should be in the lab. Right, and research or something, exactly. Well, it's been been an honor. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to offer before we go? Oh, thanks, Gary. No, it's been fun. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. And uh, send me an email and tell me what to look for and what to do, and I'll do it. I'll look when, uh, when you're done with this. Okay, I'll, I'll send you a link, and then you can um, post it on your website if you'd like. And, you know, we can be in touch via Twitter and Facebook and all that because I'm on, I'm on the social media sites as well. 
Well, let me tell you, uh, let me tell the listeners again, the book is The Second Opinion. And again, I'll put Michael's website on wordstomouth.com, as well as some of the different resources that he's offered for AS. Please feel free, listeners, to call 206-309-7318 and share your thoughts about the book or this interview. Authors, please check out my new promotion service. On there's, a, there's an actual page on my website that you can look into. And also, there's a new project that I'm working on called Hope for Authors at hopeforauthors.com. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And as always, thank you to Natalie Brown for her song, You Gotta Believe, from the Podsafe Music Network. Thanks for listening and take good care until next time.